Hello, fantasy friends. I am Scott Cullen, host of the Locked On Fantasy Baseball on the Locked On Podcast Network. I've been playing fantasy baseball for 25 years, providing fantasy analysis for nearly 20. This is going to be a fun season, and I'll try to offer some insights to help you along the way. In today's show, I'm going to look at fantasy baseball strategy. We will dive into players and more specific fantasy baseball issues in due time, but today, we'll lay the groundwork. For starters, go into your draft or auction with a plan. It might not turn out exactly how you planned, but it's a lot better than going in without a plan and just reacting to everyone else, some of whom will surely show up with a plan. For example, in one of my keeper leagues, those of us who tend to have quality keepers aren't necessarily flush with cap space heading into the auction. So there are usually a few of us who will make sure that the big names get out for bidding early so that prices will escalate. That's important because it starts to level out the financial playing field, and since the auction offers better value late than early, this game plan tends to give us more bang for our bucks later in the proceedings. So let's start then with a plan. There are a million ways to get into the winner's circle, so my one hard and fast rule is don't get too caught up with hard and fast rules. Nevertheless, there are some guidelines or principles that we can use in an effort to set a foundation for a competitive team. First, position scarcity matters. In the top 100 on Fantasy Pro's consensus rankings right now, there are 10 first basemen, 7 second basemen, 13 shortstops, 12 third basemen, 1 catcher, 28 outfielders, 3 designated hitters, 26 starting pitchers, and 4 relief pitchers. You look at those numbers, and a few things stand out. Second base, only seven. There are a lot more unproven options at second base this year, which makes the ones at the top of the list even more valuable. The 28 outfielder sounds like a lot, but once you divide it by three outfield spots, it's suddenly a little bit scarce for high-end talent. 20, 26 starting pitchers, the same thing. Again, once you go through the number of slots you need for starting pitchers, suddenly 26 starting pitchers uh, in the top 100 is not that great an amount. It's... it's uh, it leaves some scarcity there at the top end. And finally, with only four relief pitchers, the, the bottom line is don't pay for saves unless you're getting one of the really elite uh, closers. And so uh, when you see sort of that breakdown, having said all that, the multi-position eligibility can be really helpful. The way rosters have been constructed in recent years, more and more players are playing in multiple positions. Depending how that works out for you, multi-position eligibility may be exactly the way to address a lack of quality depth at a place like second base. For example, Max Muncy is set to play first base for the Dodgers, but his 30 home run power plays pretty well at second base too. Uh, Whit Merrifield uh, has eligibility at second base and the outfield, and given the relative depth of those positions, he's valuable in both places. I think I'd have him more at second base, but having the option to move Merrifield or many other players who can play in multiple spots can make your in-season maneuvering a little bit easier. This doesn't mean only draft players with multiple position eligibility, but it means that you can recognize that as an asset. And if you have two players of similar value, getting one that will give you more flexibility is worthwhile. Relative value matters. Early in your draft or auction, it's good to grab the players that put up huge numbers without getting too locked into positional needs because the players at the high end are the ones with the upside to really exceed expectations. Players like Ronald Acuna Jr., Mike Trout, Christian Yelich, Cody Bellinger, and Mookie Betts have all put up impressive numbers, so much so that it's not unreasonable to believe that they could put up 50 home runs or a 40-40 season or 120 runs and 120 RBI. However, as you move into the middle rounds of your draft, opportunity cost starts to matter more. 
This ties into positional scarcity, because at a deep position, it's easier to wait another round before taking a player, whereas at a position like second base, it probably pays to grab a quality player even a little bit early, rather than get left trying to fill the void with lesser players later on. Having knowledge of your league matters. This ties into the previous point. Relative value matters, and your league's size and competitiveness matters. If it's a 10-team standard league, you're not going to be digging as deep as if it's a 14-team mixed league or an AL or NL only league. I assume those still exist. But understanding the league will help to inform your decision making. Now, on two sides of the same coin, don't pay for reputation of declining players and proven players are more valuable than commodities than the prospects. On one hand, it pays to recognize when a player is in the decline phase of their career, so you don't get caught when it comes crashing to a halt. At the same time, value can be found in boring veteran players who can still churn out numbers. They might not be as flashy as the up-and-coming prospect, but for this season, may very well be the more valuable player. Recently signed by the Red Sox, Kevin Pillar could fit into this category. He's 31 years old, coming off his best offensive season, and isn't the sexiest name on the board. And he also refuses to walk. I think he had 18 walks last year. That's a thing for Kevin Pillar. But he has hit at least 15 home runs in three straight seasons and stolen at least 14 bases in five straight. Sure, there will be prospects that can step into the league and provide those numbers right away, but they won't all be able to do it. Have some respect for players that have shown they can produce at the major league level. Let's take a break. And when we come back, I have some stats about the fundamental changes in how teams are playing baseball and that affects the relative value of fantasy players. Okay, we're back, and we're going to look at some changes in, fa in fantasy baseball that are based on how teams are playing in Major League Baseball. First up, teams don't run as much, which means the players that do stand out. In 2011, there were 3,229 stolen bases in Major League Baseball. Last season, there were 2,280 a decrease of more than 29%. That means the players that do run have even more relative value in that category. This enhances the value of players like Malik Smith, Adalberto Mondesi, and Jonathan Villar. It is part of the reason that Ronald Acuna Jr. is ranked slightly ahead of Mike Trout. For one thing, the guys that can run aren't getting caught. There were 21 players that stole at least 20 bases last season, and Whit Merrifield, who stole 20, was the only one caught 10 times. Christian Yelich was 30 for 32. So for that small percentage of players that do run, they tend to be successful. Now, everyone hits home runs and everyone racks up strikeouts. Again, going back to 2011, Major League teams hit 4,552 home runs. Last season, they hit 6,776, a jump of nearly 49%. This doesn't mean there isn't value to getting home run hitters, but it means it's a lot harder to stand out because with few exceptions, Everybody can hit home runs. There was a time you might have said, oh, he can hit me 20 home runs. Well, that should be just about everybody on your roster should have the potential to hit you 20 home runs. That's the way it is now. With the three true outcomes style of baseball taking hold, home runs are up. But so too are strikeouts. Since 2011, they have increased by more than 24%. So it's not so special to find a pitcher who has a high strikeout rate. The difference when it comes to strikeouts is that pitchers aren't going as deep into games, and that limits the impact of starting pitchers. In 2019, there were 15 pitchers to throw at least 200 innings. That's an arbitrary cutoff point, but it will illustrate the decline in usage for top-end starters. Because in 2011, there were 39. 
So the trick isn't so much finding a pitcher who can strike out hitters. It's finding pitchers that can strike out hitters and work deeper into games. There simply aren't as many of those anymore. A few more tips. Don't assume players will return from injury on time or at 100%. If you're going to draft an injured player, you better be getting them at a discount. There may be value on draft day to getting a player who's only going to miss the first couple of weeks, but there's no need to pay full retail price for that kind of player, especially with the uncertainty that surrounds so many injuries. For one thing, teams aren't necessarily the most forthcoming with information. And for another, players have setbacks all the time. And that two-week injury suddenly keeps them out for six weeks, taking that injury, making that injury risk only justified. If you're going to take that player, it has to be at a discount. By the same token, value a player who not only stays healthy, but plays nearly every day. You don't need them to be Cal Ripken Jr., but someone like Marcus Semyon, he had 747 plate appearances last season. That's the fourth time in the past five seasons that he had at least 600. That's a lot of opportunity to accumulate statistics, and that's the name of the game in fantasy baseball. Just keep adding those numbers. Don't tank any category. Compete for all of them. There may be a temptation to ignore saves or steals or wins or batting average in Roto Leagues, especially if you've missed the boat on getting top players in those categories. But it's so difficult to score well enough in the other categories to make up for outright throwing one category away. Even if you have to take some chances late in your draft or make an early trade to address the need, it's far better to stay in the hunt than it is to figure out how to win a 5x5 league when scoring a 1 in one of the categories. In head-to-head, it's a little different. You can get away with being obviously inferior in one category because whether you lose by 1 or 10, it still counts as just one category for a given week. Generally, though, the game is made more complicated if you outright tank a category. Finally, as we wrap up this strategy session, don't pay for saves in a standard 10-team mixed league. If the league is deeper, you might have to. The closer position is volatile, and the frequent changes at closer make it risky to invest too much in them, aside from the top handful of options. Provided you're alert on the waiver wire, there will always be ways to address those needs throughout the season. The exception is that once a league gets bigger, say a 14-team league, that doesn't leave much more than two closers per team, and once some teams start to get three, that can leave you with precious few options. This is not an all-encompassing strategy session, but it should be a fair starting point. Coming up on tomorrow's show, we will start to dig into the positions in more detail and break down more numbers to get you ready for fantasy draft season. Hit me up with your questions. I'm at ByScottCullen on Twitter. The show is LockedOnFantasyBaseball on Twitter. And if you want to send an email, direct it to LockedOnFantasyBaseball at gmail.com. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Stay locked in with Locked On Fantasy Baseball, your source for daily fantasy news and analysis.